Welcome to Salem the Podcast. We are your hosts and favorite Salem tour guides. My name is Sarah Black. And I'm Jeffrey Lilly. Today, we are tackling Bridget Bishop Part 2. So if you haven't listened to Part 1, pause, go back, listen to Part 1, and then continue from where we unpause and continue. Yeah, it'd probably be the best way to do it. Yeah. I mean, you could skip part one, but you're kind of going to miss out on a lot of the uh, context details leading up to her actual trial. But first, we're going to do a real quick recap from the weekend. It's Salem Arts Fest. Yeah, like Was. it's actually... It's, <laughs> Technically, it's still going it's technically, on. It's still technically, still Technically, we well. are we are inside recording as the Salem Arts Festival is happening. It's just the peril of being podcasters, yeah. I guess. So the uh, <laughs> Arts Fest is is fantastic. Uh, we were out all day yesterday. Uh, shows, live music, artists, vendors, murals, uh, everything you could want and more. And I I don't know if maybe I'm like a little jaded to the COVID. But I think this is like the best arts fest I've ever been to. A hundred percent. It is. Right. Like I'm walking around. I'm like, the artists are great. The music. I'm like everything. I'm trying to remember like arts fest three years ago, what that was like. And I was like, I mean, it was good. It was good. I told you it's, it's my favorite weekend of the year. And today I, are you sure about that? Yeah, I'm sure about that. I I think you're lying. I, I got to see the belly dancers today. That's like when I was younger, that was the first, like, that's the first thing that really stuck in my mind was going to the Salem arts festival and seeing all the different dancers and the different musicians and seeing those belly dancers. Like, Oh my gosh, they are so captivating. Just so many cool performances. I think, did you say they had 91 vendors? Over 90. Over 90 vendors. I think that is by far. They took over the parking lot. Cloth Alley, yeah. Or sorry, the Front Street lot. Front Street lot. Which is really neat because there were vendors on the Ped Mall and vendors down through Derby Square. Um, But I think this like put them all like in a good location. It really then highlighted Front Street, which I appreciate. The the more sort of spread out it is, the I think the better everything is because it's not all like when it's all packed on Essex uh-huh. Street, you just get a little lost. But yeah. when you can like wander around and hit like some of the local businesses and other stores and other things, you just have a little more freedom of movement. Mm-hmm. And then I, I think, and again, I'm just sort of contextual. You're able to wander around, so you hit another stall, another vendor, you do a little shopping, you get a coffee. Right. Well, you're just like locked on Essex Street. You're like, you're just back and forth. So it was really neat. That's why I love the arts festival so much because it's kind of centered in Derby Square and Artists Row. And, you know, we've talked about Derby yes, Square plenty yeah. on the podcast already. Like it's, it's a market. It's, it's, it's a marketplace it's a market, and yeah. it still is to this day. I, I so. had breakfast today, this morning in Derby Square. So as I was sitting there, I'm like, I am literally in where Derby's garden would have been where he likely maybe had breakfast once before he died. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But then enjoying the market that is the fruits of his labor. So that was. And being surrounded by modern day Salem, which has turned into such a flourishing art community. It's very exciting to be a part of and be around. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty neat. Quick shout out to our listeners. Um, 
we were not expecting to get stopped or recognized on the streets. I mean, like maybe hope that someone says hi. Uh, like half a dozen times. I don't know. That's one, I, two, maybe, maybe. Yeah, quite a few three. though. Enough, enough to like. I was just thank you, yeah. thank you very much. So it, <laughs> and, it, and if you see us out, we love to say hi, chat, uh, local or visiting. Indeed, I actually had some listeners on tour last night. Very nice. Yes. Um, so a special shout out to Sarah Graystone, uh, her partner Matthew, and her daughter Zoe. They so f- is, is that a real name? Yeah, isn't that the coolest <laughs> name ever? I feel like that's like a like a like a nineteen twenties detective, right? Like in a noir black and white detective Graystone. Indeed. she And I tell you what, she was probably one of the coolest people I had met all weekend. Um, and by the way, happy belated birthday. We are dropping this episode a week after her birthday, but she's been coming to Salem for nearly two decades, both her and Matthew. Uh, her daughter Zoe is like a, I mean, she's only eight years, eight years old, seven years old. She's seven. Um, if you can imagine a child that's been coming to Salem since they were born, <laughs> multiple times a year. That's got to be pretty cool. Oh, yeah. She was totally into it. And they were big listeners. They were so excited to take the tour. And also, shout out to Derek Millen. He's a YouTuber who oftentimes comes to Salem, uh, likes to showcase the special events we have in town. Oh, cool. Yeah, he's very good friends with a lot of the street performers here. And I saw he was in for the Arts Festival, had him on tour. And uh, yeah, it was a really fun night. Lots of listeners. So thank you. Thank you so much for your support. And I hope we meet more in the future. Absolutely. Come and take the tours say hi stop us in the street i don't know when the first chick came up to to like say hi i uh i didn't really know how to react i was like "Mm, you just want a sticker (laughs) maybe we should get like special stickers for people who've listened and come and say hi like we have like special treats on us at all times i don't know (laughs) (laughs) maybe right that's your job okay i'll I'll, I'll think of i'll think of something (laughs) All right, are we ready to dig in? Let's get back to uh, Bridget Bishop. So again, please go back to part one if you haven't done so already, but we are going to do a very, very brief recap of what we covered. Part one focused very much on her life leading up to 1692, and this episode is going to focus on what happens during her accusations, her execution, and the aftermath. So we've got her whole life prior to this, and this episode is covering two months. Uh, but a lot of things that we're bringing up now, we already covered in, in the last episode. Um, and just, just as this parallels her experience, those things that happened to her in the past are then re-brought up during uh, her trial. Right. You're going to see the same names, the people that were pointing fingers at her in previous court cases, whether it be for witchcraft or theft or what have you, those people are going to be pointing the finger once again in 1692, and they will be referencing those incidences that happened years prior. So once again, it will help kind of uh, give you some context going into this episode. So what do we got? Bridget Bishop is born in England in the mid-1630s. So she's about 
55, 60 at this point. Right. She's widowed when she moves to Salem, um, has already lost two children and her first husband. She marries Thomas Oliver, uh, an established cloth worker. The marriage is abusive, which we talked quite a bit about, to the point where it spills into the public eye and inevitably the courts and the church, which are pretty much the same thing at this point. On the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, yes, remember, she's shouting old devil at him. (laughs) Definitely don't want to be doing that, especially in front of your neighbors. Thomas Oliver then dies in 1679 without a will. So She gets his land. Well, goes to court and court award. She doesn't just like steal it. The court actually like gives it to her. So it's like legally fine. Temporarily though. Yeah. She is given administration of that land until her death. Um, whether she marries or not, because he didn't have a will, it won't go to his children. Just yet another one of these sort of small irregularities that add context, not only to Bridget Bishop, but to the trials themselves. Yeah. If you recall, she is accused of and arrested for witchcraft less than a year later after formally inheriting that land. She'll remarry again in 1687 to Edward Bishop. They continue to live on that land. And again, it is located um, by Turner's Seafood Opus, right on that Washington Street area. Mm -hmm. They build a new house on the property. And just throughout these decades leading up to 1692, she has been brought to court for numerous infractions fighting with her husband, uh, that is Thomas Oliver, uh, thievery, witchcraft, a whole number of things. So it's like, and I, I mentioned this in the last episode, she is a rap sheet. Mm-hmm. For better or worse, uh, regardless of innocent, guilty, or anything, and that adds to this narrative of her, what happens in, what we're going to talk about in this trial, right? She she looks suspicious. She already, they, they knew she... They considered her guilty before she even walked through those doors. There were whispers of her being a witch years and years before also, 1692. And I, I don't want to validate any of that, but like I, any, any like Law and Order, CSI, any episode that, that like a crime TV mm-hmm. show, right? Like some true crime thing. You're like this to them. This person has escaped the law on a dozen occasions, right? And they're like, we're going to nail her for this. And they do. So now we enter the trials. Remember, if you haven't already, you can go back and listen to our episode two. Episode two. For a very brief overview of the Salem Witch Trials. And that'll Um, give you a good understanding of what's going on with the young women and some of the early accusations and arrests and the sheriffs and the court and everything else. Just a lot of good background info, um, but just to give a very surface level overview, the young girls start experiencing their fifths in late January. Those first accusations are made in late February. And of course, on March 1st, we have the first three accused, Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tichaba, Mm -hmm. brought to the Salem Village Meeting House to be questioned for witchcraft. And we talked about like the rhymes and reasons, but behind that, but so now sort of put yourself in this situation where we go, okay, so this is March 1st, mm-hmm. all of March, all of April, all of May. 
before we have any kind of legal movement on what's going on here. And why is that? Oh, that's complicated. <laughs> oh, my, but briefly. So Governor Phipps, the, the sitting governor, is en route back from England as the, the royal governor. Uh, governor Bradstreet, the sitting governor, and I put that sort of in air quotes, has opted no trials because he knows that he's not the guy in charge charge. He's like the guy keeping the seat warm. Uh, and we can debate till we're blue in the face whether or not that was the right decision or not. But that's the decision he makes. So when Phipps gets back as the guy in charge with the royal charter, it's up to him to deal with his situation. So we have this like backlog of accusations and the pressure, you know, if, if that's probably the best word to you. No, absolutely. Has been building and building and building for literally months. We have accusation, accusation, accusation. Who's a witch? We still don't know. So the the charter for the Massachusetts Bay Colony had been revoked. 1684. So he's coming over with that new charter, mm -hmm. shows up, mm -hmm. encounters dozens of people that have been sitting in jail at this point for witchcraft. Hey, Governor, what do we do? This has literally never happened before. So he appoints a special court called the Court of Oyer and Terminer. I uh, mentioned that before. It's French. It means to hear and determine. And thus the trials kick off. That's May 27th. So that's May 27th. Those first questionings, the preliminary questionings, took place on March 1st. Where does Bridget Bishop fall in this timeline? Like literally right in the middle. Right in the middle. April 18th. Well, 16th. You mean for when the yeah, yeah. the the stirrings start? Yeah, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Well, she, she's accused on the 16th. She's accused on the 16th. She is arrested on the 18th. Yeah. On the same day as? Giles Corey, Abigail Hobbs, and Mary Warren. Yeah. For tormenting Anne Putnam Jr., Mercy Lewis, Mary Walcott, Elizabeth Hubbard, and Abigail Williams. And I believe that the, the technical term is for sundry acts of witchcraft. Indeed, you are correct on that. And might I also mention that it is not these girls that go to the magistrates and file this complaint. It is actually one of their fathers, John Putnam. I was going to say, is that uh, Ann Putnam Jr.'s father? Yes, it I, is. I believe, and I, I, I haven't had to, to think about this in a while, he's he tops the list on the most accusations, right? Indeed, he does, yeah, 100%. Yeah. I think... Um, like. Is it like 19 or something? Oh, no, uh, no, more? no. I want to say it's over 50. Over 50. Yes. I think, I believe, if I recall correctly from um, Aaron Mankey's Unobscured podcast, Okay. I think he says 58 individuals. Okay. That may also, yeah, actually, no, I think that is right. And I, I think the number from his household, because remember, he's not the only one yeah, pointing yeah. fingers, but it's his, his daughters and his wife mm -hmm. and... Uh, also, Mercy Lewis, who yep, is yep. living as his ward. Oh. <laughs> the accusations that come out of that household far outnumber a anyone any others, else. Yeah. It's absurd, absurd. So, and so we, we should probably do like a whole episode on the on the Putnams. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I would love to. Yeah, okay. the bad guys. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> like maybe. Uh, yeah, I guess I, I could say. I don't know. I could say that, right? I don't know. Sure. I mean, they're all bad, right? Like. Almost everyone's a bad guy in the story. That's true in some aspects or yeah. another. So Putnam will also file this alongside Ezekiel Sheever, 
We're going to be mentioning a lot of names and stuff, but they're names that you're going to hear again and again and again. Keep that in mind as we go forward through this. So we move on to examination day. So on April 18th, she will be brought before magistrates John Hathorne and Jonathan Corwin. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so this is okay. Um, so within the scope of the trials, right? And I think we've mentioned this before the trial documents themselves. So like the actual transcripts, what went on in the courthouse, uh, we don't have a lot of the record of what we have that goes on are while they're firsthand accounts, they're not the actual, he said, she said, he said, you know, one conversations like today in court, this happened, right. Uh, private journals, letters, people have written. However, we do have uh, interrogation records from this point, from uh, pre-trial, I guess, pre-trial examination. Yeah, hundred percent. So, like, remember, the court isn't formed until the twenty seventh of May. Bridget being the first to be found guilty. Um, spoiler alert on June second. But it's these documents from April nineteenth, her pre-trial examination, that we really have to work off of. Um, for anyone that's interested, you can actually access the Salem Witch Trial documents. They have all been digitized by the University of Virginia. So like arrest warrants, death warrants, um, any of the documents that we're going to be mentioning, to, mentioning today, you can go online and look at them with your very own eyes. So let's go through her examination. Now we should note that this was recorded by Reverend Paris, the guy whose home this actually started mm-hmm. in, so he is quite biased in his uh, description, I'm sure, to what was going on. But it is very straightforward. So one thing that, that I also want to throw out there is when we talk about their biases in, in these situations, we are aware of it, and it actually helps us contextualize their behaviors and understandings even better. Because you're like, oh, this this really shows what you were thinking. And like, it, it's, we throw out these terms like, you know, extremists and, and whatever else. And you're like, but we have record of what they were saying and how they were thinking. Yeah. This is the guy that's spewing fire and brimstone sermons right. every day, all day. Yeah. This is the environment they're living in. Remember, there were no witches, but these people wholeheartedly believed in witchcraft the devil, and when they saw Bridget Bishop in front of them, given they, her reputation, they, given- they genuinely believed they were looking at someone who had made their mark in the devil's book, betrayed everything that was good and holy in their world, and this was a construct of evil. She's brought to Ingersoll's Ordinary, and almost immediately upon entering, the children, the young girls, fall into their usual fits. I know it's predictable. And uh, honestly, at this point, they're darn good at it. Like they've been doing it for months. Yeah. And we'll, we'll we'll talk more in depth about that behavior and and whatnot at at a later date. But I, I think at this point it's transitioning to that uh, attention more towards the need for attention and less from a, the actual psychological break that, that they have suffered. I would agree. There's two accounts of this examination. 
The other one's given by Ezekiel Shiver, the guy that I just mentioned. And he notes who says what to a degree where it doesn't just include the questioner and the questionee, as in Hathorne and Bridget. He also notes when Mercy Lewis spoke. And I read it and I thought, oh my gosh, like, you know, she's given a chance to... Yeah. Point the finger publicly in front of an and audience. It's, it's not just like uh, what happened at home. It's now like in the, I mean, it's not the court, but in a, in a public setting. Yeah. She's yeah. Get, it's like, it's a performance. She's yeah. getting attention. The girls will accuse her of bewitching her first husband to death. Uh, we mentioned Samuel Wasselby back in England. She responds to judge Hathorne. If it please your worship, I know nothing of it. And I get that you said in the last episode that death was fairly common for these people. Yeah. But can you imagine being brought into court Well, and being so at, at, at accused point, of killing your husband that you had lost? 30 years ago, which is also like, like adds to, to the, like, yeah, these things. And you must be sitting there being like, well, probably not everyone in this room but like a majority of people in the community, especially given King Philip's war and, mm-hmm. and, and the loss of life uh, through the call and Queen Anne's war, you're like, what do you, t- me, why, why me? Like everyone in this room has probably lost uh, uh, children, parents, uh, husbands, wives, like everyone had suffered some loss. And they're like, well, yeah, but you're the one specifically who did the thing. You're, like, you're the one that came as an outsider to begin with. With this dead husband, with this baggage, we talked about baggage in the last episode, she came to Salem with ammo for them to work with already. The girls would act very animated during this questioning. Uh, They would like mimic her. If she looked up, they would look up. If she shook her head, they would act tortured. I'd want to hit a... (laughs) I shouldn't say I want to hit a kid. (laughs) I'm going to leave that in. Thanks. (laughs) I... I can understand her frustration. Imagine you're sitting on the stand like you're or not, she's being questioned. So it's not. But all of a sudden, a bunch of 12 year olds are mocking and mimicking everything you do. Like, she, like not just 12 year olds, people that she's never seen before. Yeah. Like she yeah. makes it a point to say, I have never seen these children in my life. So the questioning is extremely leading, um, very accusatory, nothing that would ever fly in today's courtroom. No, no, right? So today you have a lawyer, a, oh, right. did we say no defense lawyer? I think technically they were allowed a lawyer, but most most of the accused were either unaware, because of course they're not familiar with the judicial system, but also you'd have to pay for one too. Yeah. So, but- they Regardless. Are so there is no one to stand up and say, Your Honor, uh, badgering or leading the witness. And in addition to that, the judges are the ones doing the questioning. It's not the the prosecution isn't doing the questioning. The judges are doing the questioning. And it is some really harsh questioning. It's it's designed so I guess I guess you can get to the concept of of lying or being deceitful or untrue, which are all sort of evil acts, right? So they think, of course, all these people are lying about being a witch. So they have to find the truth, the nugget of truth in their statement. So they're like trying to pick away. It's like trying trying to catch you in a lie. Yeah. 
or any type of like slip of the tongue, yeah. anything yeah. that they can they're use. They're like, we're going to figure you. it out. So they're just going to badger you and lead you till they get to the answer. So we're going to try our hand at assuming the roles. Yeah, I got to be the bad guy. Judge, yes, you do. Judge uh, Hathorne. I don't want to be the bad guy. I literally have a witch's name. I know you do. <laughs> I understand the, the roles that has to, but I'm, I, for the record, I am, this is not. Are you feeling resentful? A little bit. I think you have a very good bad guy's voice. Thank if that you. makes you feel any better. I'm not sure it does. <laughs> All right. So we are omitting just some stuff to make it easier to understand. Uh, that old English can be difficult, but this is coming right from Bridget Bishop's examination on April 19th, 1692. Oh, I, I have to start. Right. I'm, I'm examining. So I'm playing the role of Magistrate <laughs> Hathorne, the hanging judge within the scope of the trials. <clears throat> Why, if you have not wrote in the book, yet tell me how far you have gone? Have you not to do with familiar spirits? What contract have you made with the devil? I have made no contract with the devil. I never saw him in my life. And a quick interjection here by Ann Putnam Jr., uh, she says she calls the devil her god. I am not come here to say I am a witch to take away my life. Do you not see how they are tormented? Why you seem to act witchcraft before us by the motion of your body, which seems to have influence upon the afflicted? I know nothing of it. I am innocent to a witch. I know not what a witch is. How do you know then that you are not a witch? I do not know what you say. So basically. She's like, dude, what? Excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I don't. So, so, so then he goes on to try and clarify for her. <clears throat> How can you know you are no witch and yet not know what a witch is? And then this is probably. <laughs> what, what I, the I was best? thinking, I was thinking last night we should consider putting this on a t-shirt. I am clear. If I were any such person, you should know it. You may threaten, but you can do no more than you are permitted. I am innocent of a witch. So what's cool here, she keeps protecting, I'm not a witch, I don't know what it is. Over and over and over. and over. And he just keeps digging and trying to get at that narrative. I believe it's called, is it a leading question yeah, when you yeah. basically have the answer to the question it's, already in the question? Yeah, it's both because he's lead, he's trying to lead her to, to that thing, but he's also badgering her to get there, mm -hmm. right? Like in a court of law today, you'd have a defense attorney be like, your honor, like he's asked, asked and answered, asked and answered, asked and answered over and over and over again. What familiarity do you know that do you do this? Do you torture the girl? Do you, do you touch them? Do you hold them? Do you, do you hurt them? And she's like, I, I've answered this. And remember, we're dealing with a court of law at this point that the precedent isn't innocent until proven guilty. There is yeah. no quote unquote reasonable doubt. Like that's not a thing. I think not only did these magistrates and these children presume her to be guilty as soon as she walked into that ordinary, Ingersoll's ordinary, but I think everyone there kind of had their minds made up before this even went down. You know, we talk about how she was not in that first grouping of individuals to be questioned on March 1st, but she will be the first person 
to go up in front of the court of Oyer and Terminer. So, so we have all of this that, that is stacked against her once we come to trial on June 2nd. Before we jump to the formal trial, or mm-hmm. at least the documents we have tied to that in some aspect, um, I did want to interject with one last line from Mercy Lewis, who in Ezekiel Shever's account of that examination, he notes what she says, and I all I could I could not help but hear it in a bratty teenager's <laughs> voice. Because like right, you know, right. she's like seventeen yeah, or so yeah. at the time, and she's a she's an orphan living in the Putnam household as their ward. And honestly, I bet this is probably like the highlight of her life. Like she is at the top of this this group of girls. You can't sit with us. You can't sit with us. So this is what Mercy Lewis says in the midst of Bridget Bishop's uh, questioning on April nineteenth. Oh, goody Bishop, did you not come to our house the last night? And did you not tell me that your master made you tell more than you were willing to tell? Explain that to me. <laughs> did you, did your ma- did the devil not tell you more than d- you? Okay, sure. Did you not tell me that your master made you tell more than you were willing to tell? Now, I'm sure like some of that got lost in translation when the guy was writing it down. But basically just. So Mercy Lewis is saying that Bridget Bishop's spirit came to her that the night before and told her that the devil had made her tell more than she wanted to tell. Yes. Okay, Jen. (laughs) (laughs) But think about, you know, these girls in a Puritan society. She has this moment in front of this audience where she gets to make these grandiose and uh, magical proclamations and all the attention that comes along with it. Kids these days. Kids those days. All days. (laughs) So. So then we can move on to some formal charges. The indictments, we do have some of these documents. As you said, we don't have the court documents Mm -hmm. from her trial, but we do have some testimonies written down. So when we look at the first indictment, which is against Bridget for afflicting Abigail Williams, there is a list of Witnesses included at the bottom, and I just wanted to read that real quick because we are going to see those names. We've already heard several of them, and we're going to see them come up again. So just to emphasize how kind of stacked this situation is and how you are, we've got the same people, multiple people, pointing the finger over and over and over again. Abigail Williams, Samuel Paris. Nathaniel Ingersoll, Thomas Putnam, Mercy Lewis, Ann Putnam Jr., Mary Warren Walcott, Elizabeth Hubbard, John and Rebecca Bly, Samuel and Sarah Shattuck, William Bly, William Stacy, and John Louder. Now we're going to go over some of the testimonies that were brought up against Bridget, but... 
pretty much all those names are somehow interwoven within these. So it's a lot of the same people just pointing the fingers, reaffirming each other's stories, probably conspiring behind closed doors to a degree. I I don't know. I'm always skeptical on that. That that would, people love to gossip. Gossip, yes. But like distinctly planning, I I find so like that means you would have had to have then sat down and conspired to match your st- like the, the narrative. I, I feel like people are like oh I heard oh I heard the, oh you heard that as well. So did I, right? And and that I feel like is just that gossip wheel okay. and just that sort of perpe- that that perpetuation of fear, right? And you can egg each other on. Yeah, I don't think. And again, I I know I'll, I'm not convinced that people were sitting down and planning this. Like okay. Well, if you say this, then I say this. And what if we both saw uh-huh. this? I feel like that's a narrative that takes this to something else entirely. But like the the, the perpetuation of fear through mm-hmm. the community, like 100%. So like maybe within maybe their own households, obviously, there's some influence going on with parents over yeah. the children. Yeah. But no grand, and I would agree with that too, no grand conspiracy yeah. happening behind yeah. closed doors. But the and gossip, like, oh, if we, if the whispering. If we whispering, target this person, then we can target that person. That I don't think that was. I wouldn't thing. rule it completely out. No, but I, I think the the likelihood of that is much smaller than the likelihood of just a perpetuation of fear and which, long-standing rumors. Yeah, yeah. So, want to run through these? Do you want to? Where do you want to start? Probably one of the biggest ones is from William Stacy. So we talked about the Stacys in the last episode. The brass. Yes, it was probably the last run-in that Bridget had with the law leading up to 1692. Her and her daughter are accused of stealing a piece of brass. Yeah, from- so that's right after she remarries for the one, two, three, third, fourth time. Third time. Fourth husband. It's her third husband. Could have been the fourth husband. Dude, no one says fourth husband. <laughs> I don't find me a fourth husband. Well, that's whatever. Um, so this is. 1680, 1687, 1688. So again, this is the first time that we're we're drawing these things back into the court that are being leveled against her. So William Stacy's father had owned that mill mm-hmm. that her and her daughter had supposedly stolen a piece of brass from. William will go on and just go through a list of grievances against Bridget that start 14 years prior. So like, that's another thing to note going into these trials, you can pull situations from years, decades ago, in fact. Which I always like to tell people on tour because people are like, well, what's going on in 1692? And I'm like, to be fair, not a lot's going on in 1692. I mean, obviously a lot, Mm -hmm. but the accusations are coming from things that have happened is clearly we're talking about right now, 1687. We're going to go into others that happened 1685 and her arrest in 1680. So you're like, no one's just all of a sudden acting the witch. Mm -hmm. They are drawing on these narratives that have happened and been building for years and years. And like, how do you prove that? But like, how do you 
in this court case, in this court situation, how do you disprove that? Yeah. You can't. Yeah. And that's where they run into so many issues and why so many people are easily convicted. So he says within like the scope of these last 14, 15 years, uh, it starts with her paying him a visit when he had smallpox and she seemed just a bit too interested for his liking. And then what do you know? He gets better shortly thereafter. So suspicious. Absolutely. She paid him for some work and it just happened to disappear from his pocket shortly thereafter. Mysterious. According to him, she, she also made a comment about folks thinking that she was a witch and soon afterwards, a wagon wheel would get stuck in a hole. I, I think I read somewhere with that one that there was no hole. When he went back to find yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the hole mysteriously yeah. disappears. It's like the wagon wheel breaks and it's like, oh, the hole back there. It's like, like imagine that you're driving down the road, right? And you hit a pothole and blows your tire and like you- It's just gone. You call when the you cops go back or something. To- you go back, oh, the, pot, the pothole's gone. <laughs> and of course today you're like, well, yeah, you're trying to like scam the insurance company or something. <laughs> oh, very nice. Right? But back then they're like, oh, she must have done it because she's a witch. And you're like, Okay. Can we move on? What's what's what else? What else? Oh, let me tell you. Okay. One night he awoke to a cold pressure on his mouth and found Bridget or her specter, of course, perched at the edge of his bed. He described her as wearing a black cape, a black hat, and a red coat. Scandalous. Scandalous. And this will be far from the last time we hear about her nightly visits. So this is all Stacy. This is all Stacy. So this is before we move on. Remember, there is a legitimate grievance with the theft of the brass from years prior. And now they're taking that legitimate grievance and adding on all these other spectral attacks, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, well, she stole the brass, but also she attacked my wagon. She came in with a disease. She was in my room. Da, 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 da. And then to make it even more convincing, they bring in the brass stuff. Like they talk about, they reference this incident and he goes on to say that after the fact, he was going out to his barn one night and his body was just flung against a stone wall. Obviously. Dude yeah, probably tripped. No, 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 like, <laughs> no, no. It was definitely a witch. It was definitely a witch. De- definitely a witch. <laughs> and then to top things off, he will then blame her for the death of his daughter Priscilla, who then dies in 1690. Um, my guess is the heat from this brass feud was probably still cooling and he claims that Priscilla, otherwise a healthy baby, spent two weeks crying uncontrollably and then passes away. Which but unfortunately goes into your pattern that you're describing. Yeah. Oftentimes there's some illness with the children and instead of blaming it on natural causes, because they really didn't have that good of an understanding of devil. natural causes at that point, it was yeah. the devil. Yeah. And then because it's not, it's e- blame and anger are, are easy tools to wield bluntly. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's easy to blame this imaginary construct. And then 
it's a very short step from there to transfer that blame onto someone who you might have a grievance with, especially given their scenarios, uh, or sorry, especially given their already pre-existing beliefs in these concepts of evil and, and whatever else. And you're like, well, it was the devil and da, da, da. Cause that's going to mm-hmm. make you feel better. That that's alleviating you of the responsibility of a death of an infant, which is hundred percent difficult. And then you're like, but not only is it this construct of evil, but then there's this conduit of that evil in the form of a witch at this point, it, it's Bridget who then you can now target that person. That person is to blame for the loss of your child, which then makes you feel better about yep. the situation, which is, just so sad, but it's, it's what we do as humans, right? Yeah, we try to yeah. find an explanation for terrible things that happen in our lives. And for people living in this day and age, they didn't have the, the, the tools. They didn't have the knowledge at that point to explain these things. And it was way easier to point the finger at someone else. Samuel Gray, another one that files charges, will also claim that Bridget killed his child, much so, like William Stacy. Yeah. Uh, there's a spectral visit in the middle of the night. So, so then that adds yet another layer. She's not responsible for the death of one, but two infants. And then you can tack on maybe she's also responsible for the death of her own. What, what? And I'm sorry to say, but those afflicted girls will, in the middle of the courtroom, claim that they have seen the ghosts of her murder victims. Can you imagine a bunch of screaming children acting foolishly in front of everyone? First, remember they mocked her. First they mocked her, but then to call her a murderer, to say that she's a child murderer. When, When again, everyone else in the room has also lost children. But now, but now well, she's the one that's she, responsible. She's the one. They can see the dead. What? What about everyone else in the room? What about the the other two hundred people, literally hanging out the windows of the courtroom, who have all lost? Probably, I would, I w- I would wager, every single family had lost a child. Yeah, but you need someone to point. But now it's her. You need someone to point the finger at. Yep. So these nightly visits. Do you want to talk a little bit about? I know you're a fan of John, John Louders. So, yeah. So, uh, let's see. So, I went to school for psychology. Um, and one of the things that I really- I actually did, too. Oh, your undergrad. Was your undergrad psychology? The th- first three years. Oh, oh, and then oh. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. I was like, I don't even like dealing with my own problems. I don't want to deal with anyone else's problems. And then I went to the family and was like, I'm going to change to history. And they're like, what are you going to do with a history What's degree? What's wrong with you? Sorry, and you're like, Con- I'm going to run a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> now I am. <laughs> Continue. Sorry. Well, so, uh, you know, so often I, I think within the scope of the trials, I think we forget a large psychological narrative, right? And that that's in everyone, right? I think we focus a lot on the extremism mm-hmm. and, and these sorts of things. We don't talk a lot about PTSD. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't talk a lot about uh, the other things that are going on in the community at the time. And when I first read what was going on in this situation, like a big red blinky, like um, this, mm-hmm. It stood out to me as uh, a nearly textbook case of a of a psychological issue that we have a far far greater understanding of today. 
what we call sleep paralysis. Which I'm sure a lot of listeners have probably heard of before. It's a terrifying yeah. concept. I think it's about one in a million people uh, suffer or experience sleep paralysis. Uh, it's basically when you're sleeping and waking mind just sort of splits a bit. And so you're still in REM sleep, so you can't move and you're still dreaming, but you're conscious. So you're awake and you can see effectively what is going on in your head. Sometimes this is described as a physical form, sometimes a, a, a shapeless form. Uh, and you're typically, you feel a weight on your chest and you're frozen in place for a few minutes until your brain is like, oh, oh, hold on, fix, fix, mm -hmm. okay. And then you can rouse yourself. And oftentimes people describe following on auditory and visual hallucinations. Now, Mr. Louder describes seeing the specter of Bridget Bishop uh, being frozen in place and a weight on his chest and also as to seeing her familiar. Is that the, the chicken-footed? The chicken-footed, black-furred, human-faced imp. He had also seen her out the window because he'd been watching not her, but her garden, because, or sorry, her chicken coop, his garden, because her chickens had escaped their chicken coop and ravaged his garden. So he has spent several nights. Probably stewing over his rummaged garden from her chickens and watching the chickens so the familiar or the hallucination that he sees is a chicken footed black furred than this human face and again in the midst of the witch trials in the midst of tichba saying there are nine other witches in the midst of living next to bridget bishop in a world where they don't know what sleep paralysis is he sees these specters he sees and it's a very very real thing to him um and like you said, people who experience sleep paralysis today still describe it as genuinely terrifying. So I don't get paralyzed, but uh, I do have uh, visual hallucinations during my sleep patterns. Mm -hmm. Very once in a while, um, it depends on us usually how stressed I am. Uh, but I have just straight up run out of a room because I genuinely see it is a complete crossover. You can't distinguish between what's real yeah. and what's not. I don't lose control of my body, which to me is probably the most terrifying aspect of it all. So um, an interesting, you bring up stress. Uh, some of the um, things that prompt uh, issues of uh, sleep paralysis are high levels of stress and anxiety, where in which you're living in uh, an extremist <laughs> situation where in which you genuinely believe that the devil has descended on Salem to destroy the entirety of God's kingdom, that's, I would call, a high stress or high anxiety situation. I don't think they had meditative techniques back then, no, they necessarily. Had, yeah, <laughs> you know, you can Google uh, sleep paralysis and learn that it's okay and it's normal and there's things we can do to, to, to deal with this situation. And then I think that... The, icing on the cake that's probably not what another thing that i find fascinating about this is then he sits in court and recounts a very real psychological trauma that he has gone through which i think is probably somewhat different than other people's experiences and i don't want to discount we don't know mm -hmm. some other thing like for you, you genuinely read his testimony as truth. Like as, this is as, something he genuinely experienced. Yeah. So then he's telling these, again, magistrates who have been put there by God to find the devil. And they must, 
hearing his truth must have been. It probably sent chills down their spine. But I think what's most interesting about his case is her familiar. The one that we talked about in the last episode. Yeah. This chicken footed black. And I'll keep yes, we know it. we I, I love, love it. I love it. We know how much you love it. But it's important to her. Can narrative. you tell can you um what what noise would that familiar make? Could you I, I, I don't know. It spoke. It spoke to him. It didn't make a noise. It spoke Oh, it spoke. It spoke. Do you know what kind of voice it would what are you trying to get me? I'm trying to get you to speak and you love this familiar so much. Has have you ever dreamt about that? No. And okay, I just care. Okay. I don't. I don't. <laughs> Here's a tidbit of information for you. Uh, uh, the amount of times I wake up and remember my dreams, I can probably count on one hand. It's weird. <laughs> so just a couple more accusations that are brought up against her. One being from Samuel and Sarah Shattuck. Now Samuel. And Sarah will file multiple accusations against individuals, many of which will contribute to their eventual death. They had operated a cloth dyeing business in Salem Town, and Bridget happened to be one of their customers. On one occasion, though, she paid. He passed the money to his assistant, or so he says. Um, His assistant name was Henry, and... Henry claims that poof, the money just disappears. I bet Henry. What do you What do you go out and buy? I say, what do you What did you do, yeah. Henry? Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, she never paid me. And I know you. What do you What do you go out and buy? Some extra tall beers there. The fact that this is even, I mean, of course, we can easily explain away all of these accusations, but like the fact that this is even being brought up as an issue, like why are you not looking at the assistant who you 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 saw the money. You gave the money to him. Well, because Richard Bishop, again, has that record, right? If you're dealing with a woman. Who are you going to believe? And, well, no, 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 sorry, not a woman. If you're dealing with any person who already has an established record of deceit in, in some way, shape, or form, right? If you go to your, your store manager and they're like, dude, yeah, but the guy who's like, you know, done, he's already been accused of theft. They've already done this. What about the spoon? What about the brass? I don't know where the money went. It just, and they're like, and, and you're like, oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. No, it doesn't. Horrid. Horrid. So that story ends up continuing. Apparently Bridget went to the Shattuck home, confronts Sarah And shortly thereafter, their son, Samuel Jr., will fall ill. And not just ill, tell me what this reminds you of. This is a straight quote from the documents. Taken in a terrible fit, his mouth and eyes were drawn aside, and he gasped in such a manner as if he was upon the point of death. So what does that remind you of? Like, pretty much the girls. So he, wait, he's watching what the girl's reactions have been. And then they ask him what happened. And he describes basically the same thing okay, happening to his child. Come on. Years later. You know, of course our hindsight is 2020 and we have a somewhat better court system at this point, but my goodness, it is so, so frustrating so to one look thing back. That, that gets me is I understand their. No, I'm not going to get in that narrative. 
There are a couple additional testimonies, but we're just going to cover one more because I think it plays into her narrative in modern day quite a bit. It's probably something that folks have heard associated with her. And that is the testimony of John Bly Sr. and William Bly. So what are we in? 1692. So again, we're talking about things that have happened in the past. And in 1685, they find puppets in her wall. So remember her and... Edward Bishop had constructed a new house on the land that she had inherited from Thomas Oliver. And the Blyes had assisted in some of that demolition work. And according to them, when they were working in the cellar, they found poppets stuffed into the walls. Yeah. So uh, a few things to talk about with poppets. They're like little... Dolls, I would say they're like akin to like a voodoo doll mm-hmm. is sort of the, the closest understanding. Um, but they are actually somewhat common. They're sort of a form of like white magic, uh, sometimes used for protection. And these things are entirely uncommon, which is also why in 1685, no one makes a huge deal of it. They're like, oh, oh yeah. Well, she- also, like, do we even know if they were brought up in 1685? Like, did anyone actually come forward and say, ooh, look what I found? The, the, the or, Blys did not that I know of. So like, there's a good chance that like, this is just hearsay. They're saying, oh, we found these seven years ago. Yeah. I doubt Which, they have them I, laying around still. I would guess that they found them. I, I mean, you're right. Okay, fine. It's, yeah. It was common. Like you said, it right. was very common. So, and, but then now we get to flip this narrative, right? Because now she's back in the court and they're like, well, we found puppets in our house. And they're like, well, that makes more sense now that she's a witch. So all these, again, all these other things that have happened to all these other people, I would, I would speculate that a significant amount of people had probably used this sort of white magic, protect ourselves. We're going to put some, you know, and this is where we mm-hmm. get like marks on the door, horseshoes under the door frame, you know, a different, you know, superstitious acts. The Puritans were not excluded from these sorts of things. It was very common. Can we also note that like, there's a good chance that she didn't even put them there if they were there. Like she moved on, like she married Thomas Oliver. Yeah. She moved yeah. on to that property with him. He had been there for probably a good amount of time. It may have been someone who lived in the house before him. The Blyes will then go on to testify that one of their pigs, um, specifically John Bly and his wife, Rebecca, one of their pigs had gone mad and it would basically had been bewitched by Bridget. So uh, livestock being damaged or bewitched in some way, very common throughout these testimonies. Yeah. You could pretty much guarantee that if that person was found guilty, you could get something for those damages. So very. And, and remember, we've talked before about sort of the these familiars and the drying up of the witch's milk. Or the the cow's milk because the witch is using the familiars and the death of cattle. Mm -hmm. Uh, So again, this is just yet another narrative that we're adding on to the. So we have another document housed within the Salem Witch Trials archive. And that is of the examination of Bridget Bishop, along with several others. And that took place on June 2nd. So at about 10 in the morning, under the direction of the direction of Sheriff George Corwin, nine women and one male surgeon conduct physical examinations on the bodies of Bridget Bishop, 
Rebecca Nurse, Elizabeth Proctor, Alice Parker, Susanna Martin, and Sarah Good. Bridget, Rebecca Nurse, and Elizabeth Proctor are said to have, quote, excrescence of flesh. Am I saying that right? Basically, just like extra skin. Extra skin. Extra skin. Quote, between the pendendum and anus, but like to teats. So once again, going back to our familiar discussion, I wanted to like be very forward about this language because in my tours, I make jokes about like the third nipple, right? And like- And and, and a lot of people I, I see sort of poke or prod their friend or, you know, someone who has like a wart or like a little skin tag, like, oh, you know, like on my neck or uh-huh. haha. And it's while those are possible, it's always more likely that these marks are going to be in some sort of private area. Well, I just want to drive home the fact too that this is just a straight up like physical assault. Yeah. Like I oftentimes compare it to like on friends Chandler's nubbin right but they are taking these women in a very very modest staunch society bringing them in against their will stripping them down and examining them all over their body every it's just so disturbing to think about and and one thing that again I I think is strange is how the narrative constantly changes with all of these individuals mm-hmm. right so it's like well the witch's mark is good in this situation the word of god is good in another situation the witch cake was used with the girls and you know i've had the question on my tours like why didn't they just give witch cakes forever why didn't they just search witches marks for why didn't and it's like it doesn't matter stop using logic it's like again when we get to the, the 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 topic of leading and badgering, uh-huh. they're just gonna dig and dig and dig until their narrative fits what they want in the situation that's at hand. Mm-hmm. And to your point, she'll end up being searched again later on that afternoon. That afternoon, and they don't see what they saw earlier that morning. She doesn't make her innocent. No, she's still found guilty. She, she's now almost doubly guilty because they have this narrative of now she can hide. The, the, the mark. She now has some magical skill to conceal it. And like almost every day I have to be like, duh, 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 don't ask why she didn't hide it the first time. Just don't even bother asking the question. Because there is no logic. There isn't. She is condemned. A warrant is issued for her death. So can I, yeah. real quick, I, I, I do want to mention though that the all of these spectral assaults, the death of the children, the the witches marks, the familiars, the hallucinations, the 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 that all these things, while they're taken into account, the real sort of reason she's found guilty is because she's been caught in several lies. So it's like a telling of untruth. So they're looking at all the spectral evidence, like yeah, but, and it it, it gets back to this point of what they can prove, right? So, oh, oh, you killed my my kid, my son. This is that I saw this specter. Yeah, a it's lot all of, hearsay. It's a lot of hearsay, but they're like, ah, ah, ah. But you did do that. You lied and we caught you. And you can, you can blatantly see, hear that in front of them. Yeah. And it's easy to so just nab on that. Yeah, so it's, it's like, um, what's his face? 
the mobster. Sorry, sorry. Um, I can't help you with this. We don't really have many mobsters in Michigan. Oh no, he's like Chicago. Oh, like oh shoot, sorry. He got done in for tax evasion. Al Capone. Ah. Right. So we know Al Capone is running like this huge crime syndicate. Oh, murder, murder, okay, murder, okay. death. You know, drug. But they running, have to get him smuggling. on like the technicalities. Yeah. They have to get him on yeah. something that they can prove. Yeah. So they get him on tax evasion. And just like here, same thing, Bridget Bishop's doing all these spectral things and they know it. Well, they think they know it. And they nab her in the end and like, oh. You lie. You lied. I think they do the same thing for, uh, it's very similar to what happens to Rebecca Nurse. Yes. She's brought into the courtroom for a second time. Yeah. We'll be probably chatting about her later on. Couple months. <clears throat> Spoiler alert. <laughs> Don't give them too much. So they will condemn Bridget Bishop and a warrant for her death is issued on June 8th, 1692. Remember this is a, she is technically condemned by a jury. um, All male white landowners. With that, it's the, it's this weird catch 22 of yes, they are all, all of those things, but the enemy is the devil. So they're putting their f- best foot forward. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, they think they're doing yeah. God's work. So, so when I, when I explain this to people, I, I try and sort of rein like, yeah, the nepotism, but rein in like today, I, I feel people have a tendency to sort of uh, shoehorn it into our understanding of like a two party system, you know, bipartisan political issues and like, mm-hmm. no, no, no. Like 90% of the people here are Puritans. They're putting the most well-equipped, well-trained, most educated people to fight the devil. But that's all who's living here, mm-hmm. you know, in, you know, colonial, uh, pre-colonial New England. Right, right. So the warrant is issued, and I did want to read just a very quick section from it just to kind of acknowledge what was put out for everyone to see. Mm-hmm. Therefore, in the name of their majesties, William and Mary, now king and queen over England, to will and command you that upon Friday next, being the 10th day of this instant month of June, between the hours of 8 and 12 in the afternoon of the same day, you safely conduct the said Bridget Bishop from their majesty's jail in Salem to the place of execution and there cause her to be hanged by the neck until she be dead. That's signed by William Stoughton, who was sitting at the top of this court, and by all accounts, much worse a guy than uh, Judge Hathorne, the hanging judge, but we won't get into that today. Yet. So she's uh, set to be hanged on June 10th, 330 years ago. Almost to the day. We are actually recording this on June 5th, and you will hear it just a few days after June 10th. Part one is June 7th. Part two is June 14th. Yeah, we did that on purpose, yeah. if you didn't. If no. you hadn't picked up on that. <laughs> so, um, Execution day, I often think of um, her being led up to Proctor's Ledge alone. Yeah, well... She, she, I mean, alone as in the only person yes, up on yes. that cart, the only 
person found guilty and brought up to be executed that day. And she could have no idea what was also to come. We, we look at her narrative with a complete story. Mm-hmm. She must, she didn't, she obviously knew everyone else was in jail and all the fervor, but she didn't know what, what was were. to come. Yeah. But she's brought up there, put in a cart, shackled, guarded, uh, whole town. People from all over the area. Yeah. I mean, Went. this is the first one. Yeah. Imagine you, you talked about pressure. Imagine the pressure that was building up to that day. The people hearing about, these trials, witches, the, witches, the, witches, the witches, the witches, the witches. And then, then finally they get to see one put to death. It's like, okay, we got it. We got the devil. We finally found one. No, this is just the beginning. So she's brought to Proctor's ledge. Um, uh, we, we didn't have a, a proper gallows, like a, like a town center, like in Boston, there's mm-hmm. like, it's the common or the like garden. a permanent structure. Yeah. Setup. So we had sort of opted to use this uh, section of land uh, where people would come and going from Boston, be able to see it. It was just sort of outside the town. Um, and she, she's brought up there. Everyone goes to, to, to witness it, to, to watch. Uh, and Sheriff Corwin acts as the executioner. And he's not a good guy, right? And, and I don't want to give him any credit pretty much ever. No, he's an awful guy. But now he also stands with the responsibility of, of executing uh, everyone within the scope of the trials. So they're put on a small step stool. Uh, she is going to have the rope put around her neck, a hood put over her head and her feet or ankles tied or her petticoats tied together for decency purposes, because Isn't that nice? that's what we're worried about. And then the process of execution um, is one of perhaps a handful of things. Either she's pushed or pulled or spun yeah eyewitness accounts claim they just yeah turned the ladder and you kind of just rolled off of it yeah it was not it's not like the pirate films like you see there's no drop so one of the things that they had to do was get that there's no big drop so the noose uh doesn't snap your neck you Um, quite literally just takes about three to five minutes for you to choke to death and die in front of everyone they can all see you Absolutely horrible. Your face is covered, so there's nothing you can do. She is the first. But will not be the last. Uh, Her body, after that... uh, I don't think anyone really knows what happened to it. There's some differing accounts uh, I've heard taken down, left for a few days, left for a few weeks, uh, and disposed of. Um, in the ravines next to Proctor's Ledge. As we had said before, when these individuals are found guilty of witchcraft, that takes away their right to a proper Christian burial. So their bodies are just discarded. Her family will never, I'm sure that they did put something up on their, maybe, hopefully. It's hard to know. What what are you supposed to do at that point? We we do know that some families will go back um, and retrieve their loved ones, but... Few and far between. Indeed. And and with with this, and I know people look, when I tell people, like, they just, like, left her body, but they're like, that's, how could you? And again, a community full of religious extremists who believe in the devil, who believe that she has committed these acts, it is no longer 
that person that you knew. It is it is a construct of of evil. And why why would you bury that? No, you leave it up as a warning sign. Yeah. Who cares about her body? She's a witch. And that's a that's a very real narrative to them. They're not doing like a inhumane thing by leaving her there. It's it's not even her. But I will say it does cool down slightly, right? Yeah. Just a little bit. Um, I do wonder if maybe they got it out and it was like, oh, whoa, this just got real. I, I think so. And I, I think that's highlighted um, by uh, Magistrate Saltonstall, who uh, who recuses himself uh, at this point, sort of uh, cites a family emergency. How convenient. Yeah. And I, I think in later years, he sort of talks about how the doesn't he did, he wasn't agreeing with, with what was going on um of course he, he couldn't really turn around and throw in their face because then of course he'd be a witch uh but he he's he steps down um i think that also speaks to the fact that people did understand that this wasn't right yeah i mean as much as they are ruled by this fear in this moment in time there was some sensibilities to it and perhaps people were agreeing with salt and stall it's like man this doesn't really add up you know this is a lot of hearsay but uh unfortunately he's the only one to really step away and i I think and of course he doesn't speak out against it either he just says you know i can't kind of just yeah yeah, clear my hands of it yeah and i I think we we see we we see people sort of step away like as a community they're like whoa what did we just do Mm -hmm. and but that shock wears away within a few weeks. And then they're like that fear that is built almost into their culture at this point reignites itself. And you still have all these people sitting in jail. It's like, okay, let's continue forward. Tichaba has said there's witches here. We have to figure out to get the rest of them. Yeah. So we'll see, of course, to follow Bridget, multiple trials, followed by groupings of executions. And she will be one of 19, 19, 20, if we count Giles Corey, but he's, you know, his own little, little particular instance. And we'll, we'll talk about him, but, but 19 are hanged. So if you do want to make the trek to Salem, I do suggest stopping by one of the memorials here in town. You can see Bridget Bishop's name engraved in those stones. As we said, she has no proper burial. So a lot of times Mm -hmm. people use these spaces as a way to leave her offerings, pay tribute. Um, I often find, oftentimes find apples on her stone. And I did once find a note from a descendant, which was kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. She, she holds an odd place. Uh, because she is the first, she is alone. So a lot of times other people's narratives sort of get tied into the other people who they were executed with, but, but she stands alone. Also, I take this moment to try and clear the air. Sure. Um, there are conversations that oftentimes surround Bridget Bishop Um about maybe her being uh, sort of this sultry harlot, this bar wench playing, you know. Uh, uh, Entertaining men. Yeah, bar games late at night and wearing red and, you know, this like Victorian bodice kind of kind of deal. Um, and that is pretty much unequivocally untrue. 
There um, are some experts that say that she was known to wear red. Yeah. But the whole entertaining men, tavern owning, bar wench, not the case. No. Um, and I think a lot of times her narrative gets intertwined with some other people's. And the reason for this, and I'm going to try and without getting too convoluted, we have no standardization of spelling and we have no standardization of uh, names. And oftentimes common names get repeated and we have juniors, we have seniors, we have uh, whatnot. Uh, so a month later, we have uh, a victim by the name of Sarah Wilds. Now, Sarah Wilds' daughter is Sarah Wilds Bishop. She marries Edward Bishop Jr. So you have an Edward Bishop and a Sarah Bishop who are both accused of being witches. So Edward Bishop Jr. is technically the stepson of Bridget Bishop, which would make Sarah Bishop her stepdaughter-in-law. So there we go. So even, even But neither I, of them are executed. Right, right. But Sarah Bishop's mother, Sarah Wilds, is. Yeah. And when you look at this narrative and you look back, and even during the day, or sorry, even during that time period, uh, some people think that some of these accusations uh, may have had to do with this other Sarah Bishop or with Sarah Wilds. Uh, maybe they're confusing them. And when you look at these girls who don't know some of these people and like, oh, I heard Sarah Bishop to this. I heard Sarah Bishop to that. And then it's uh, scribe. Or Goody Bishop more Good. specifically. Yeah. 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 Remember, M they Bishop. often, oftentimes they didn't use first names. It was you Goody or Good Wife. Yep. Uh, so is Mrs. So you Bishop. Throw Bishop at the end Mrs. of it. Mrs. Bishop did that. And you have multiple Mrs. Bishops, multiple Mr. Bishops or good men and good wife. Um, and we can even see this narrative today. Sometimes people's reputations uh, get tarnished or, or hurt because of something that someone else in the community who maybe resembles their job or resembles their name, their name. has done. And it's 330 years. We have the internet. We could just mm -hmm. like, who is this person? But even with the internet, we still, I mean, I still yeah. hear misconceptions swirling about her because she gets so, uh, it's because the narrative is so convoluted with different names, different people all being intertwined. And of course, being the first, she's going to be, she gets that she's, added everyone's going to throw everything onto her. Yeah. She's not exonerated, formally exonerated, cleared of these charges until 2001. Yay. 2001. So I, I tell people this and they're like, they look at me and they're like, that's not even, how is that even possible? So, it's slow moving wheels of bureaucracy. Sure. But in addition, think it's 1692. First, you think they're all witches. And maybe five, ten years later, things start to get cleared up. What happened in 1711? So in 1711, we, we actually do get some retribution for the families. There is, without going too far into it, when 1711 rolls around, we do get some justice for the families. There's a push to get 
reparations, monies, compensations for the damages. You know, you got to think some of these people lost their breadwinners. Some people lost actual physical property because you had to pay jail fines. Yep. I mean, there's just, there's so many different components that are, that have ruined lives, have ruined fortunes, have ruined families. It takes a bit, but there is a legal push to get some type of compensation for that during which a majority of these victims will be will have their name cleared mm-hmm. by the king and queen of England however bridget bishop is not one of them she and four others will not be cleared until 2001 now we're not 100% sure on why uh, this is the case, why some were cleared and some weren't I think until later down the line. But we have a pretty good idea. Likely it's who's going to speak for you or can you afford to have someone speak for you? So it's not like they just took all the names, brought them across the pond, said, okay, cool. If These no, people aren't witches, please we're done, sign on the dotted right? line. And even even still today that it probably wouldn't be that simple. Their names would have had to be brought in charges cleared. Uh, what were they probably charged individual of? cases? Yeah. Case by case basis. Uh, maybe if you were charged of this and been made, and especially maybe, maybe, and this is a little bit of speculation with Bridget Bishop's case, because she had been accused of so many other things that they were like, well, you know, she did, maybe she did steal this stuff. Maybe she did lie. And not only that, I'm sorry to say her daughter, her only surviving daughter, Christian, dies Passes away. in 1693. 93. So she has no and I'm one. Pretty sure Edward Bishop doesn't live too too much longer. No, so so okay. So now the only people who can speak for Bridget Bishop are Edward Bishop's kids whose land she kept from them for the better part of a decade. You mean Tom, Thomas Oliver's kids. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Are Thomas Oliver's kids who whose land she kept from them for the better part of a decade? Yeah, no one's going to be going to bat for Bridget, unfortunately. In 2001, there is a push from modern-day descendants of these victims, and they are able to get the Massachusetts state legislature to send through a formal bill on October 31st, 2001. That exonerates those last... Well, that exonerates those last remaining victims... Susanna Martin, Alice Parker, Wilmot Reed, Margaret Scott, and Bridget Bishop. Wilmot Red. Uh, but that's not the end of the story. No, because how can that ever be the end of the story? So can we finish the story now? What do you mean? Can the story end? Can we wrap it up? Can yeah, we, we can wrap. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but we got we got the last little tiny tidbit. No, 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 no. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is the end of the story. Hopefully, I don't want there to be another story after we end this story. Okay. You know oh, you I mean? mean like you, you hope that there's not, that, 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 right. this is it. This yeah, is yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I see what you're saying now. There is somehow still one person that was not cleared of her charges. Which again, where it's 2022, how on earth is that possible? Again, we're missing a significant amount of trial documents, names, spelling, standardization, things have been lost. But and sometimes- you've got to think there's- Nearly 200 people accused of witchcraft, but sometimes people fall through the cracks. Yeah. And thus was the case with Elizabeth Johnson Jr., 
Now, you may have heard there are some whisperings in quite a few of the news stations at this point. I got to hand it to those those kids in North Andover. They are Did definitely a bit of bringing some attention to yeah. their community. They discovered? Is that a good word? Found? I think learned. so. I think that'd be a good a good way yeah. to put it. Yeah. These middle schoolers, a group of middle schoolers in North Andover, Massachusetts, discovered that Elizabeth Johnson Johnson Jr.'s name had not been cleared. On on any of the lists. On any of the lists. So they took it upon themselves to research the necessary steps and they got an acting senator in their corner. And they were able to use her as the facilitator, and she brought it to the Massachusetts state legislature. And that is getting worked through uh, that process literally as we speak. As we speak. They approved the budget. They approved it for the budget. However that works, I don't know how much yeah, money it takes so, so, to so exonerate few, someone. But. It, it's tacked on to the, the thing, and you can only – it doesn't matter. Um, but basically it's happening. So yes. it is in the works. She has not officially – if I'm – am I correct on this? She's not officially exonerated, yeah. but it is happening. It is not far off. So congratulations to the middle schoolers of North Andover. Such an exciting achievement. Right? And really doing – it shows there's some good yeah. still in I'd the lo- world. I'd love to talk to some of those kids. Maybe we can figure out a way to do that. I think we can get that. We can probably figure We that can make out. that happen. Yeah. And my last shout out to the makers of The Last Witch film. So there are a couple filmmakers that are documenting this story with the intention to draw more attention. I don't think they anticipated that and it would get moved through so quickly. Exactly. But all the more better, they now get to follow the process as well. It's so, and what's that? The Last Witch film. Okay. 330 years in the making is their tagline, (laughs) which I very much appreciate. They are currently raising money to get the film funded. Mm -hmm. So if you are interested, please go check them out. I think uh, I may make this our first Salem the Podcast donation. Very cool. Yeah. All for history. For history. For history. I love it. All right. I think... I think we have given them a lot. I think I think that <laughs> just about wraps up absolutely everything. If there's anything left, uh, we'll fill it in later. As we will for all the things. <laughs> but uh, for now, that's all we've got. Thank you again for being such amazing listeners and sticking with us up until this point. Next episode. We're going to be stepping away from the trials into the early 20th century and talking about the Great Fire of 1914. Should be good. It's going to be interesting. Fascinating. Very interesting. But until then, uh, make sure you subscribe, leave a review, go tell some of your friends. We appreciate all of you. And follow us on all the socials. We are at Salem the Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. YouTube. Um, and also, if you have any questions, again, feel free to email us at email us at hello at Salem the Podcast. And if you'd like to take a tour with Jeffrey or myself, links to both of those companies are in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you later. <laughs>